A task force established by the Biden administration has issued dozens of recommendations for unionizing federal agencies and contractors. Will it have any effect? After all, the percentage of the workforce that is organized has been falling steadily for years. For analysis, we turn to the managing partner of the D.C. office of the law firm Tully Rinke, Dan Meyer. Dan, good to have you back. Glad to be with you, Tom. And unionizing vast numbers of additional federal employees is probably great for the unions. Is it any good for the federal government, though? Well, there's a little bit of context here, Tom. You know, this is the Biden administration digging out from something as old as the PATCO strike in 1981. You know, unions took it on the chin for eight years in the 80s. And people lost interest in them after the ability to strike went away or the federal employees weren't able to do it under the existing laws. And so it's dwindled. Uh, I've seen numbers as low as 11 percent of the federal workforce is unionized. So the Biden administration's got a great idea to help organize and give more permission to be on site and some really great provisions in the law. But the real hard work on this one is trying to figure out how the collective effort of trade unionism translates into the modern workforce. And that's about individual people's attitudes. So that's about figuring out what works for the younger employees who are much more flexible in the way they work. And so that remains to be seen. So they can get the tools, but I'm not quite sure that the strategies exist to adapt collective bargaining and those efforts to the modern workforce. Yeah. I mean, that ability to strike, hate to take sides here, but I can't see when that should ever be allowed to happen in the public sector because, you know, somebody's got to represent the taxpayers at some level in all of this. Well, it's interesting because that was the issue in 1981 because PACO, they were breaking the law. It was a 1955 law that said they couldn't do that. But the ripple effects, you got to remember that that was a federal agency union But the message sent in 1981 went nationwide over to the private sector, and that's when striking became a non-option pretty much nationwide. And it still is to this day. The number of labor actions, it's very uncommon to have a strike now. So you have to have some alternative, though, inside the federal government, because there are essential public services that a strike would just cripple parts of the federal government that I just don't see the consensus in allowing that. But there may be alternatives to that, and this is where further organization helps, because what happens now is it's a one-sided equation because OPM and OMB, Federal Resources for Labor Department, and the Department of Justice's personnel law, all those experts and those government attorneys are there for use by management to figure out how to deal with their workplace issues. There's really nobody to help workers on the other side of the equation. This is why you have that challenge. Yet, as you point out, you know, there's a lot of cross-current issues here is people's attitudes toward work, towards their employers, towards unions, toward the idea of unions, the prerogatives of management. It's a complicated thing to thread. But let me ask you this. Could one impediment to unionizing or could one way to make it more expedient and be seen as something efficient for people is maybe narrow the areas of what people can bargain about? And I only say this because I'm looking at Social Security. I'm looking at Veterans Affairs, long running between Democratic and Republican and back to Democratic administrations and still no resolution and big, huge contract sets of clauses. Maybe with narrowing it down, in your opinion, maybe make things more suitable to unionizing and more efficient for everybody. 
Well, look, the narrowing could occur through negotiations. And so I'm usually not a fan of, uh, in legislative efforts, or even by executive order, funneling a negotiation process because something that might not have been useful in one proceeding becomes useful in another proceeding. So I, I do think it's a good strategy when they're negotiating collective bargaining agreements to be very flexible and to leave the appropriate language in the agreements that shows that you're not giving up something permanently just because you're giving it up in that particular agreement. The other thing that's a part of this, and it's very hard to sort of nail down, is that, let's be frank, OPM gave up its control over the senior executive service almost two decades ago. So even on the federal side, it's very balkanized from agency to agency. There's no real management perspective, executive branch wide, like there used to be, you know, as far back as the Eisenhower administration, you found very similar cultures, agency to agency across the board. OPM doesn't do that role anymore. And that means that unions have a tough time as they try to move between agencies to figure out what the strategies are. They're dealing with almost like independent companies and corporations as you move from one agency to the next. Sure. We're speaking with Dan Meyer. He's managing partner of the law firm Tully Rinky. And let's get into the recommendations themselves. There's 70 of them. We can't discuss them all. Which ones do you think are most significant coming from this task force that the president appointed? The critical ones that I've focused on for agencies are the ones that I think will help change the conditions on the ground that will make things better for the unions as they try to figure out what the common agenda is for their members. And that's about reversing this trend that occurred since the 1980s, the the trend that has inhibited the ability to actually organize on site. So some of these are very basic provisions, like being able to be on site to do the organization. The other challenges, though, there's still a lot of voluntariness. There's no closed shops. It's a very open shop environment. That's tough because there are a lot of federal workers who will be free riders, basically. They'll take advantage of what benefit the union does provide, but they're not going to be active members. And I see that quite often in my practice. Somebody will come to me and want to file a union grievance, and they're technically in the union, but then you look and they just joined the union the day before they called me, or they haven't paid their dues because the dues are optional. So the permission to get in and organize, then the unions have to make the case. And that's the tricky part about this is that they're going to have to be very persuasive in making the case so that their ability to organize that's been guaranteed by the statute will then result in some sort of change that will actually strengthen their efforts uh, within the agency. I also think, uh, and this is the whole idea of focusing on better leadership relationships with the unions, I think is also helpful And I think this is new to the Biden administration. Both the Obama and the Clinton administrations were very constructive in their language. But beyond some very small movements to basically thank labor for support in the elections, there wasn't a lot of engagement with the agency leadership and within the executive branch to help them understand that they need to work with unions to make conditions better in the agencies themselves. So I think the Biden administration's focus on changing the culture and the tone and the language of the way leadership within the executive branches, which which does end with the president, the president is in charge of the executive branch. Many federal managers have a hard time understanding that he is the guy in charge of that branch. So that better language and better dialogue with management, I think will help. But that's going to be 
restricted to the time that the president's in office. Somebody else comes in and that could change very quickly, even if the tools are provided in the statute. So it seems like there could be two important developments on both sides. One is some continuity in how agencies treat unions, regardless of who's in office, whether they're a Trump-style approach or a Biden-style approach to federal management. That's for the government to do. And maybe for the unions to, I think for a lot of employees, might be less than comfortable with the union's political activities, since you have a non-political workforce, in theory, that is under the Hatch Act and all the rest of it. I wonder if more people would feel comfortable with public employee unions if they were simply concerned with working conditions and tasks at the agency and forget about the politics. Well, that's very important. I think it's a great point because there needs to be a sensitivity to the fact that it is an apolitical workforce. And I think that has slowly weakened over the last four decades. You know, I I came out of a military family and my dad was effectively a federal employee as a naval officer. And I never saw any politicization of our military when I was a kid growing up. In fact, the way wives and husbands handle questions about politics was very, very astute. They were very smart about that. And then starting uh, mid-1980s, all of a sudden you saw sort of a politicization creeping in. And again, it can get alarming because you don't want your federal employees, whether FBI agents or military members, employees across the board, you don't want them having a political orientation in the office. They certainly can have some outside the office within restrictions of the Hatch Act. So that sensibility on the part of the unions would be very helpful. But the other thing I think is, and the legislation is not, is at the door of this, but is not getting to the core of it, which is that somebody has to figure out what federal workers want. Um, And this is what often happens is everybody comes in and says, oh, we want to give you X, Y, and Z. And maybe they don't want X, Y, and Z. Maybe they want A, B, and C. And especially post-COVID, we had this big effort in the uh, Clinton administration to look at telework as a viable option. The Bush administration actually got them there. And, you know, teleworking is a great concept and it works really well, but it scares a lot of managers who feel like, when they manage, they're only managing when they're, you have their eyeballs on somebody in a cubicle, which is not true. So you have to have a change in the way we interact with federal employees and understand what they want on the job. And it's not always more compensation. Sometimes it's the way people are treated in the workforce, sure. way individuals. And that's what I think unions could be very helpful in is sustaining that dialogue that actually gets to the core of what a majority or a plurality of the federal workforce actually wants. And it's a very vocal workforce. If you actually tap into their thoughts and ideas, they will tell you what works in the workplace. Yes, I've talked to a lot of them, and I understand you're absolutely correct on that. So probably some good dose of management skill plus an infusion of just basic human relations would go a long way toward solving a lot of these problems, wouldn't it? Well, yes. And I think that is actually something the legislation may or may not trigger, because what the president needs to do is pick up the phone and talk to the director of OPM. And somebody has to run the executive branch for the president. Okay, you can't leave it to 72 independent little offices and agencies. There has to be a personnel management strategy on the executive side of the equation And better labor legislation doesn't help it. It gives that executive somebody to talk to and get the ideas. But I think we've just let the executive branch go out and run itself. And this became a problem in spades under the past president because he had whole agencies slamming the door in his face because of the craziness of the times. So I think the White House needs to get control of its branch again in the same way that Congress controls its branch and the Supreme Court controls its branch. 
Dan Meyer is managing partner of the law firm Tully Rinky. As always, thanks so much. Okay, Tom, you have a great day. All right, we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, The first person personally was my mom. Uh, She was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, She was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education. She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while, although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks um, as part of her job. She worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then clean houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, It it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, uh, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my 
leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind. Um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with the Washington Post um, 
uh, interview and it, it, you were amazing. And it, it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. Want your business to have the best opportunity for success? Take a tip from tech industry leader Intel when you move or expand in Ohio. The new Silicon Heartland is the place forward-thinking business leaders find ample talent, a highly ranked business climate, convenient central location, plus an especially low-risk environment for site selection. Where else can you have all the room you need to grow while rubbing elbows with the giants in your industry? Visit successinohio.com today. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.